discussion. How should followers of Jesus Christ engage in our culture? How should we interact with those who don't think like us or believe like us or live like us? How do we live in a world where we're uh, surrounded by people who fundamentally live their lives by a different set of convictions than we do? Uh, I, I love that discussion and I think it's a very important question for us to answer because we've been called by God as followers of Jesus Christ to be different. To be set apart from the rest of the world, according to scripture. It goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. God said to his people, you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Psalm 4.3, David wrote, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And lest we think this is just for Old Testament Israel, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Clearly, we have been and are to remain set apart from worldliness which is a churchy way of saying anything that is not of God. We're to be separate from ungodliness because we've been chosen as a holy priesthood. And, and how has that come to be? Well, of course, it is all because of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.10 10 explains we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so the result of that is that if we're to live as people who've been transformed, set apart, by and for God. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. Paul says it this way in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and, and perfect. And the word transformed in that verse is the Greek word metamorpho. It, it means to be transfigured, just as Jesus Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is to say we are to be otherworldly, not of this world transfigured like Christ. So obviously there's supposed to be a difference in how we live compared to how unbelievers live. And yet does that mean that we should be at enmity with the world around us? Should our posture as Christians toward those outside the church be hostile? Of course not. We're not instructed in scripture to isolate ourselves or hide ourselves from the world around us. Being set apart from something is not the same as being hidden from something. On the contrary, we're supposed to be a city on a hill. The word says a light to the world that everyone can see out in the open. In Matthew 5:14 through 16, Jesus says, "You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden." Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay? Our lives are supposed to be lived out in the open in relationship with believers and unbelievers within the culture, not hidden away, protected from all contact or influence of those who don't believe the same as we do. Christians should be fully engaged with the culture around them as bright shining lights through the spiritual darkness of this world so that others can see their way clearly to God. And so practically speaking, what that means is we not only should have relationships with unbelievers, but genuine friendships. Because that is how the doors are open for people to receive the gospel, through a relationship with someone that they know and trust. And of course, 
We know that the Holy Spirit is ultimately responsible for calling people, leading people to him. And that can and does happen in many different contexts. But very often, and I would say most often, he accomplishes his will in unbelievers' lives through believers who are in relationship with them. And the key there for us is learning to be engaged without compromising our convictions, living within the culture without bowing to the culture, which is what we talked about last week in chapter 3 of Daniel. And there's a balance there. There's a balance that we have to maintain to remain engaged in culture but not spiritually submitted to the culture. Okay, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that phrase, unequally yoked, is the, the Greek word uh, heterogazeo. It uh, refers to animals that were hitched up together, even crossbred with one another, uh, even though they were of a different kind. And so here Paul is referring to human relationships between two people where one person's conduct and direction in life strongly influences or even controls the others in a way that is inequitable or unhealthy. And then Paul goes on to say, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What uh, fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? It's a reference to Satan. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So relationships where two people are yoked together, like, like in a marriage, uh, those relationships ideally should always be rooted in Christ, which means that both people in the relationship, for it to be spiritually healthy, must be transfigured, conformed into the image of Christ continually by the renewing of their minds. In other words, both parties in the relationship should be followers of Jesus Christ. That does not preclude us, however from having relationships, even friendships with unbelievers. And again, we should have friendships outside the body of Christ, just not to the same level as our relationships within the body of Christ. We shouldn't be yoked, heterozygeo, with unbelievers. And so there's automatically a difference, or should be, for believers in relationship with one another because as a result of being a part of the same body, we are by definition yoked together. And so balancing our relationships in this way is what it means to be in the world, but not to be conformed to the world. We live and interact and engage in culture, in relationships and friendships with unbelievers without compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives, which of course is the standard that we live by. And in those relationships with unbelievers, as we remain true to the gospel, the Holy Spirit creates opportunities for us to influence others for the sake of his name and of his kingdom. It's exactly what we see happening in the life of Jesus Christ during, during his ministry here on earth where he was described in Matthew eleven nineteen 19 as a friend of sinners because of the relationship that he maintained with those who were not religious and not yet following God. And interestingly enough, we see a great parallel with Jesus' life and ministry as a friend of sinners and Daniel's life and ministry as a friend of those who are anything but followers of God. And we'll, we'll also see the influence that Daniel ends up having in the lives of those that he was in relationship with uh, here in the next portion of our story today in a message that I've entitled Friend of Sinners as we continue to work our way through the book of Daniel. And we're going to talk about how to live in our culture, but specifically how to have influence there without compromising our convictions or bowing our hearts and minds to the culture. And, and because chapter 4 really has 
two different themes running through it. We're going to work through the first 27 verses of this chapter today, and we'll cover the final 10 verses next Sunday. Okay, so let's turn there now to chapter 4 of the book of Daniel, and we'll pick up our story right where we left off last week, starting with the first three verses. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Okay, so the chapter opens up with the king making a decree. He's going to share his story, his testimony, with all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was well aware that all of the earth's geography was not under his kingdom. This was simply a way that ancient rulers would express the extensive nature of their own empire. And so he addresses those who are under his rule by saying to all peoples, nations, and languages, which incidentally uh, is the very same group in chapter 3 that he commands to bow down before his golden statue. But a lot has happened to Nebuchadnezzar since then. And so he wants all of these same people who are a part of his kingdom to understand that there is a king who is greater than all other kings, including himself. So there's been a transformation. There's been a a transfiguration in the king's life from self-worship to worship of the one true God, which is the transformation that we all must make if we're to be grafted into the family of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar opens up this chapter by making a proclamation to all in his kingdom concerning the work of God in his life, and he shares the stories. He's actually looking back here at what has already occurred in his life. So you can think of this entire chapter, if you will, as a flashback in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Let's keep reading, verses 4 through 9. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So here we go again, if you were here two weeks ago. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So this is the sequel. It's like part two of the story from two weeks ago. The king has a dream, has him very worried, and for good reason, just as he had had in chapter two, and just as before, he brings in all of the pagan wise men, and he gives them a a second shot at the title. Just as before, they all fail miserably. And so he calls in the big guns, his one God-fearing friend that he always seems to turn to when things get serious. You notice he mentioned the God that he served, some being someone else, but he knew that Daniel had the spirit of the most holy God living in him. And it almost makes me laugh a little bit because if you're serious about your faith, and obviously we're all flawed, not talking about whether or not you're perfect. We're all imperfect. We're all flawed. But if you're the kind of Christ follower who really does try to live according to the gospel, and you have friends who are not believers, not followers of Jesus Christ, then you have probably experienced at some point in your life just what Daniel is experiencing here. I certainly have. I have friends uh, who are not Christians, 
whom I love dearly, who love to hang out with their other non-Christian friends. They do all sorts of uh, uh, ungodly things with their other friends and they follow all sorts of alternative philosophies about life and they love to debate what truth really is and whether or not there is a God and on and on and on and on. But invariably, when they run into real trouble in their lives, after making their rounds through their other friends and, and not getting any answers to whatever it is that's vexing them, uh, they will call me. And they want advice. And I'm grateful for that. Some of them will even ask me to pray for them. I've been called to the hospital to pray for people who say they don't believe in God. At least not until they're facing a serious illness. I've had unbelievers ask for marriage counseling and guidance through all kinds of very troubling issues when they couldn't find the answers that they needed anywhere else. Why is that? Because most people, I believe, personally, even those who refuse to admit it, I believe that most people know at their core that all of this was no accident. That all of this came from someone higher, someone bigger, someone more powerful than themselves, and they know it instinctively because his fingerprint is indelibly present in the DNA of every single living thing. So I, I think that at our core, most people understand that, even though they won't admit it and they may not know who he is. Still, you know, people aren't stupid. They can recognize that there is something deeper something uncommon, something that transcends uh, common human nature going on inside the true follower of Jesus Christ. They can see it, they can sense it when they're around true believers. And although they may not understand it when they're at their most vulnerable moments in life, they will very often reach out and try to grasp on to that which they do not understand, but desperately hope may hold the answers that they seek. And that is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing in our story. After exhausting all of the other options, everything that the world has to offer, he reaches out to the one that he knows has something different than all of the others. Something that's true, something that's real, something that's powerful, and something that he desperately needs. We see that clearly here because even though the king was not a follower of God at this point, he says to Daniel twice, maybe three times, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. And then uh, he goes on to describe to Daniel his dream. Let's read it together. Verses 10 through 18. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in the bed, and behold, a watcher, the Holy One, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men." 
This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar's dreams about this massive tree. It stretches to the heavens, and everything around it depends upon it for provision and protection. And then this watcher, which is a reference to an angel sent by God to carry out his judgment on the earth. This angel comes down and orders that the tree be cut down, but not completely destroyed. There's a, a stump that allowed to lay in the ground with a band of iron and bronze that represents Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> for seven periods of time. And the, the vast majority of Ancient and modern scholars, for that matter, agree that, that this is a period of seven years, okay? And so there's this great sense of foreboding in the dream for Nebuchadnezzar because the last dream was about his kingdom, and surely he must suspect the same of this one. So he calls for his one friend who's different from all the rest, and he asks him for the answers to these troubling visions. And Daniel responds in a way that no one who's unfamiliar with this story could ever anticipate uh, given the events leading up to this, up to this point. Ver verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. That's quite a statement by Daniel, and it reveals his heart toward the king, the same king who had Daniel and his friends taken from their homes, the same king who uh, took them away from their families, their way of life, stripped them of their identities and heritage and culture. Even their names were changed. They were most likely castrated. And at one point, the king tries to kill Daniel's three closest Hebrew friends by throwing them into a giant oven. And yet, Daniel is here dismayed not by the dream in and of itself as the king suspects and we would expect. Rather, Daniel is beside himself because this terrible dream is about his great friend, King Nebuchadnezzar. Are you kidding me? It is jolting to say the least when you realize the genuine affinity and friendship between these two men who couldn't be any more different in their background or culture or faith. Daniel is a devout follower of God. In fact, his fame was spread far and wide. We, we see him show up in Ezekiel's writing in chapter 28 of that book, uh, which tells us that his notoriety had already spread through the vast Babylonian empire uh, at the time of Ezekiel's ministry. And Daniel at this point, despite all of the, the best efforts of King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians is still God's man to the core. He's still God's man. In contrast, King Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan among pagans. He's as anti-God as you can get. In Ezekiel chapter 30, verses 10 and 11, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are referred to as the most ruthless of nations. And yet there's this genuine friendship between these two that becomes almost palpable. In these verses, the king not only refers to Daniel by his Babylonian name, but also by his Hebrew name. That's a big deal. He also describes Daniel as the chief of magicians. And although that doesn't seem uh, particularly flattering to us, the word magicians in the ancient Aramaic that this was written in could be translated to mean scholars. So these were the most educated, wisest men in all of Babylon, which means the king was paying really high honors and respect to Daniel by making that statement. 
And when Daniel hesitates to share the interpretation, instead of threatening him with his life, as Nebuchadnezzar had done before and with others in the past, he simply reassures Daniel that it's okay in this very patient and kind manner, neither of which were hallmarks of the king's reign up to this point. And yet this affinity between them was not one-directional, as we see Daniel's obvious dismay at the implication of this dream for his friend the king. The word dismayed in verse 19 is the Aramaic word shamam, which is literally translated as appalled or astonished. He was completely taken back by the dream and what it would mean for his friend, which becomes even more evident in verse 27, which we'll get to, where Daniel counsels the king to turn from his sins so that he can avoid the fate suggested in the dream. Right? If, if Daniel was looking forward to the king getting what he deserved, he certainly wouldn't have suggested that the king repent of his sins and practice righteousness. But Daniel was very sincerely and genuinely distressed for Nebuchadnezzar. These two guys were friends. And yet as powerful and influential and persuasive and overbearing as Daniel's friend Nebuchadnezzar could be, Daniel was not swayed or compromised by him at all. In fact, the, the opposite was true. And so, because Daniel's foundation in God was firm, he was able to be the voice of God. It's the first point in our outline. He was able to be the voice of God in Nebuchadnezzar's life, just as Jesus represented the Father and was the voice of the Father to all who would listen, both believers and unbelievers, in his ministry on earth. In uh, John 12, 49 and 50, Jesus said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus was the voice of God to all that he was in contact with, but the greatest impact of all was on those whom he was in relationship with. They went on to change the world forever. This is our model to follow today. If we are to be the voice of God in this culture, we should have relationships with unbelievers and not shallow relationships that last just long enough to either sell them on our religion or conclude that they're completely lost causes and then we move on. No, we should have genuine, meaningful relationships with unbelievers. Why? Because trust is built through relationship. And once trust is established, we can share the truth about God's love and desire for them. And if they trust us, they're far more inclined to listen and by the way, not because we're trying to rack up convert notches on our belts or shore up the church membership roles, but because we genuinely love them deeply and we want them to experience the hope and salvation and fulfillment that we've been given through Christ. And it matters. It, it matters that we not only care about the lost, but that we actually care for the lost. The most effective way to do that is by engaging them in real, loving relationships. You see, many unbelievers will never hear the voice of God from a sermon because they won't step foot in a church. Many of them will never hear the voice of God from the Bible because they won't pick one up. And they won't listen to the voice of God from some guy screaming it through a bullhorn on Main Street because they have no relationship with him, which means they'll never trust a word that he says. But they will listen to a true friend. Why? Because that's where trust resides. 
in the bonds of true relationship, which is the reason that a pagan king was willing to listen to a devout Hebrew, a God follower. It was because of the trust that was forged in the fires of a relationship, by the way, that started out very tenuously, but became genuine and strong over the years. And that, that point shouldn't be lost on us either. Real relationships, lasting relationships, trusting relationships aren't built overnight. They just aren't. And they aren't founded on perfect circumstances or free from problems either. I think it's safe to say that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's relationship had seen its share of challenges, right? Like that time when Nebuchadnezzar ordered that Daniel and his friends be ripped apart limb from limb, literally. That could put a strain on a relationship. The time he tosses Daniel's friends into an oven. That isn't exactly a great way to start out a long-lasting relationship, right? So, look, just because the relationships that you have with unbelievers in your life today may not be on sure footing, maybe those relationships are even volatile at times, that does not mean that we give up and abandon those souls to an eternity without Christ. No, we keep on building those relationships and building that trust, and it may take years from the, from the time of Daniel's abduction by King Nebuchadnezzar to this moment where Daniel wrestles with the fact that his friend the king is in real trouble was conservatively 23 years. Possibly much more depending upon how you interpret the timelines. The point being, the trust and friendship that they shared didn't develop overnight. And given the tremendous position of authority and influence that Daniel was given in Babylon, he could have easily wreaked havoc on Nebuchadnezzar's reign if he'd wanted to. And probably no one would have been surprised. But instead, he chooses to stay the course and build trust through relationship with this pagan man. And the outcome, as we will see, was profound. Okay? Don't give up on unbelievers just because they don't respond to your message the first time or the hundredth time. Because as you live out your life in front of them, and more importantly with them, with genuine character and integrity, even though they may not agree with a word that you say, they will not be able to argue with the results that the message offers because they'll see evidence of it in your own life. Even when everyone else around them lives for themselves. They'll see you constantly and consistently living with hope and integrity and compassion, real love and concern for them, even when it brings no immediate benefit to you. That absolutely over time, maybe a long time, but it will absolutely build trust. And eventually, by God's providence and grace, the door will be open for you to be His voice. Possibly the only time that they will ever hear his voice as they look to you for answers when the world fails them. And I'm just telling you, don't miss it. Don't throw it away because there are challenges in the relationship. Stick with it and whatever you do, don't compromise your convictions. Because nothing will destroy that trust and witness to the message of the gospel faster than when we who say we believe live like we don't in front of those who are often just waiting for us to falter. You see, even under the threat of immediate and horrible death, Daniel never compromised his faith, which means that his testimony was not compromised before the king, which resulted in an open door for Daniel to be the voice of God to a very powerful and yet very pagan man. And God will do the same through us. 
God will do the same through us in this very Babylonian-like culture that we're living in today when we consistently live out the gospel in real relationships with unbelievers. And uh, Please, by the way, let this be an encouragement to any of you who may be married to an unbeliever. Okay? First of all, God is not panicking. And neither should you. He knew exactly who you'd marry before you were born. And he has a good plan for you. And he has a good plan for your marriage. Obviously, you cannot control your spouse. But we don't give up on them because God hasn't given up on them. And he has a, he has a good plan for you. And a good plan for your marriage. And if you'll stay the course. And especially if you'll keep your testimony intact without compromise. Your spouse will see the reality of who Christ is in you, even if they won't admit it. And when the time is right, the Holy Spirit will move on the heart of your spouse. Now again, we cannot uh, ultimately manufacture an appropriate response for them. There is free will. And some people don't choose to do the right thing. Only they can make that choice. But you can be the voice of God in their lives simply by how you live in relationship with them. It is the most powerful thing coupled with prayer that you can do for an unbelieving spouse. Okay? Let's finish our story for today as Daniel interprets the dream, verses 20 through 27. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. <clears throat> it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. That you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And it was as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And so, heartbroken, Daniel interprets the dream to his friend. And I won't expound too much on the dream here because Daniel has already spelled it out. But I'll highlight a couple of significant points about the dream that may not be quite as obvious at first glance. First of all, this great tree towering toward heaven is reminiscent of the Tower of Babel. And just as God rewarded the hubris of man, the, the arrogance of men at Babel by dismantling their plans and bringing them to a place of utter humility, so too he promises the same for Nebuchadnezzar, who foolishly attributes the achievements of Babylon to his own abilities and his own power. 
Furthermore, God not only promises the loss of Nebuchadnezzar's power, but the very faculties that distinguish him as a human being apart from the other animals. This is fascinating, fascinating research. We'll talk about it some next week of what they've found about this history with him. Uh, really intriguing stuff. And so this is to be a complete and utter humiliation. For, for seven years, until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the absolute and supreme power and sovereignty of the one true God, which we'll see next week, and which is amazing because not only has Daniel's interpretations come true in the past, um, but here after being given <laughs> the interpretation, he still chooses not to serve God until he goes through this experience. It's phenomenal. And yet the fact that Daniel counsels the king to turn from his sin and seek righteousness Believe it or not, it's an indication that Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation by God was not inevitable at this point. In other words, God is giving the king an opportunity to avoid the fulfillment of the dream if he would but turn away from his sin and cruelty toward the people, particularly the poor. So Daniel says, break off your sins in verse 27. And that phrase, break off, is an Aramaic word, parak, which means to tear away. It's to get rid of something in your life, which is a very similar image to the picture that Jesus paints in Mark 8, 35, when he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. And the Greek word there for loses in the phrase, whoever loses his life, is the word apollomy, which means to put out of the way entirely or to abolish. It's to get rid of something in your life. And so obviously Daniel's offering this message of repentance to Nebuchadnezzar, but he goes even further because it's not only a message about avoiding judgment, it's an incredible message of hope as the king has an opportunity here to turn from his sin, remain in power, and continue to enjoy the life that he's been so blessed to enjoy. When Daniel tells the king that if he repents, there may be a lengthening of his prosperity, verse 27, the word prosperity is the Aramaic word shelavah, which is closely related to the Aramaic word shalah, which is the word the king uses back in verse 4, when he says, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. In other words, if Nebuchadnezzar would just humble himself, God wouldn't have to fulfill the dream that means him losing his place of power and living like an animal for seven years. On the contrary, God's giving Nebuchadnezzar through repentance an opportunity to retain the life that the king himself clearly recognizes as one of privilege and prosperity. And to me, all of this seems patently absurd given the king's behavior. And yet it emphasizes the incredible graciousness and compassion and forgiveness available to him by God. By the way, the same compassion and forgiveness and graciousness that's available to us that everyone, including this preacher, needs desperately in his life. None of us deserves God's grace and forgiveness. So Daniel here is offering the king a way of escape from the coming judgment, which is a tremendous expression of the compassion of God through Daniel to this really evil ruler. Okay, We're not only to be the expression of God's voice in the lives of unbelievers, but very often we are the only expression of the compassion of God in the lives of unbelievers. Jesus was compassion in the flesh. When he was in a town called Nain in Luke chapter 7, he sees a woman who just lost her only son crying. In verse 13, he says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he went on to raise her son from the dead. You see, when we hurt, 
He has compassion for us. Matthew chapter 15, as Jesus looks out at the people who have been following him, he says to his disciples in verse 32, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So he performs a miracle and he feeds them. When we're in great need, he has compassion for us. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, he said, Come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, no matter the burden, no matter your struggle, no matter your sin, the hardship that we face, Jesus is compassionate toward us, and he always, always, always offers us a way out that is filled with hope. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ today, then you've already experienced the compassion probably many times in your own life already of Jesus Christ, which means that likewise, we have a responsibility to be that compassion to those around us who are not yet following him. The Apostle Paul explains it in Colossians 3, 11 through 13, when he wrote, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We're commanded to be compassionate to others, just as Jesus was compassionate toward us when we didn't deserve it. You see, we have to show compassion when others don't deserve it from us. Not just to those who are like us. Not just to those who we're comfortable with. Not just to those who we approve of. No, we're, we're to be compassionate to everyone. And I won't take the time to read the story of the Good Samaritan, but Jesus is clear in that teaching that we're to show kindness and compassion to saints and sinners alike. Why? Because the truth doesn't get very far when we use it to cut people up into little pieces. It's hard to receive a message from someone when you're being beaten over the head with it. That's why angry preaching does little these days in reaching the lost. The truth of the gospel is good news. It is hope for the hopeless. It's healing for the broken. It's light for those who are in darkness. It is a home for those who wander. And it's available to everyone. That's incredible news. That's incredibly good news. There cannot be a more compassionate message for lost people than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet it is very hard to hear that message of hope when it is delivered in arrogance or anger or judgment. We're supposed to be the voice of God to a lost world, but no one will listen to that voice of Christ through us if it is not spoken from the heart of Christ that is in us. That's a heart of compassion. It has to be. It must be. So just as we have an opportunity to be the voice of God in people's lives through relationships, real relationships, the truth of that message must always be expressed with great compassion as we live out those relationships. And that is the answer.
to the question that I asked at the beginning of this message. How do we live in a world where we're surrounded by people who fundamentally live their lives by a different set of convictions than we do? The answer is we do it by engaging them in real relationships that build trust over time so that we can be the voice of God in their lives and we always express that truth with compassion and kindness. That is when lives will be changed. That is when the church will once again be looked to by the world for answers. And that is when those whom we've been praying for will move toward Christ, when they experience His voice and His compassion in the relationships that they have with us. Let's pray.